All right, good morning. Well, we are just two days now away from the big day, believe it or not. Uh, Christmas is almost here. And I was reflecting this week on the significance of Christmas in my own life. And I'd like to share a little bit about where I'm coming from personally uh, when it comes to Christmas. I was very fortunate to grow up in a home uh, that gave me very positive memories of Christmas. Uh, my mom would really do up the house, decorate it uh, really beautifully. She still does. And all of December, there was this feeling of anticipation and a kind of magic in the air. And that would build and build. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, that feeling of magic would spike and the anticipation would reach this unbearable level, and then there was this joyful payoff on Christmas morning, you know, uh, all that waiting and all that magic uh, led to that morning where it felt like everything was right with the world and life just couldn't be better than on Christmas morning. And I think that when we're fortunate enough to have that kind of joyful experience of Christmas in childhood, as many of us do, we end up wanting to recreate that experience as we get older. And so we have our little rituals that we do to try and recapture those feelings, right? That sense of magic, that sense of joyful expectation, and that feeling that everything in the world really is the way it should be. So we put up those same old decorations, uh, we watch those same movies that we've seen a million times, we listen to those uh, same old songs, we reconnect with our families, uh, some of us humble ourselves and do things that are really meant for kids, but we do them anyway around Christmas. Uh, we go looking for the perfect gifts. And we do all these things because we're trying to reconnect with those feelings of, of magic and peace and safety and joy. And all of them help to recreate this sense, even if it's just for one day, that things in the world really are as they should be, and everything is in its right place. Now, some years were pretty successful at doing that, at recreating those feelings. Things come together, right? The decorations get put up in time, uh, the presents get purchased in time, and, and people like the gifts that they get, food comes out right, and there's enough downtime to maybe enjoy some seasonal movies and, and music, and all of our loved ones end up in the same place, and they're happy and healthy and speaking to each other, um, you know, and we end up experiencing those same waves of positive feelings. But a lot of the time, and maybe even most of the time, everything doesn't end up in its right place. Uh, the feeling that things are as they should be doesn't come. And the Christmas season becomes a stressful and maybe even a depressing time because we're trying to create this sense of perfection that isn't attainable. Or we're longing for a feeling of perfection that feels so far out of reach. This is why if something goes wrong during the holidays, it hurts more. Right? It's hard enough to uh, suffer the loss of a marriage or a pet or uh, a mom or dad or, or grandparent. But if it happens during the holidays, it just feels exceptionally cruel 
right? And even if the loss didn't occur during the holidays, but some other time during the year, once the holidays come around, that loss is felt more acutely because, oh, it's Christmas. This is the time when everything's supposed to be right with the world. This is the time when everything's supposed to be in its right place. This is supposed to be the time when we get a little taste of heaven on earth. And when it feels like our lived experience is falling far short of that, it hurts. It's painful. Um, hopefully he doesn't mind me sharing this, but my brother and I realized at, at one point several years ago that throughout much of our lives, we have both had the same recurring dream. And it's one that shows up around Christmas time. And in the dream, it's Christmas Day, but nothing is in its right place. Like, the, the tree didn't get put up, or the tree is up, but all the needles are off, and it looks awful. Um, you know, we didn't remember to buy any gifts. Uh, or we're like in school on Christmas Day, you know? or all the above, and we've, we've both had these kinds of dreams over the years, and we even have a name for them, the Christmas Nightmares. I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but um, I, I think even if you haven't experienced Christmas, night, Christmas Nightmares, you can probably relate to the feeling that Christmas Nightmares are, represent, which is this feeling that it's Christmas. Things are supposed to be the, in their right place. Things are supposed to be, um, all is supposed to be well. And there's this fear deep down that they won't be. Now, I don't know how this Christmas season has been for you personally. Uh, maybe you feel like things are in their right place. But there's a good chance, given the world we live in, that you don't feel that way. You know, maybe you're feeling sad that someone you love isn't going to be with you this holiday, uh, either because they have passed away or they're far, far away. Uh, maybe you're feeling like you can't afford the gifts that you would like to buy. Uh, maybe you're estranged from a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter. Maybe you or someone you love is suffering from an illness. Maybe you're far away from the place that feels like home. Maybe you never got a chance to string up any lights or set up a tree. And maybe the Christmas bonus that you were expecting to get ended up just being a subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. Hopefully some of you got that reference. <laughs> Maybe things just feel like a mess. And if you're feeling that way this Christmas season, I want to encourage you to recognize that you're in good company. Because for Mary and Joseph, that first Christmas must have felt like a complete mess where nothing was in its right place. Uh, if you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. 
While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So let's try to put ourselves in Mary and Joseph's shoes here. Like us around Christmas, they probably wanted everything to be in its right place for Jesus' birth, right? Uh, we don't know this for sure, but I can't imagine that as an expecting couple, they were not making plans for Jesus' arrival, right? That's what people do when they're anticipating uh, a baby, right? They, they get a crib, they paint a room, uh, they collect baby clothes, they take Lamaze classes, and I can't help but think that Joseph and Mary must have been doing the first century equivalent of all these kinds of things. They probably got a recommendation on a great midwife to have to be there when Jesus was being delivered, and maybe their neighbors were planning on bringing them meals after Jesus arrived for a couple weeks. They must have been hoping and praying that everything would fall into place, right? But then something happens that messes everything up, right? The emperor decides now is a good time to take a census. And that means everyone in the empire needs to go to their hometown to register, uh, which means that Mary and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem. So, so much for Mary and Joseph's plans. And not only do they have to go to Bethlehem at just any time, but when Mary is at the end of her pregnancy. Now, it's easy for us to miss what a burden traveling to Bethlehem would have been. It's not just a 20-minute car trip in those days. It's a serious journey, especially for a heavily pregnant woman. I found an interview with a scholar that had some insights about what that journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have been like. Uh, the scholar's name is a guy named James F. Strange. Unfortunately, he died this year, but he was a, a well-respected professor of uh, New Testament and biblical archaeology. He would lead annual excavations around Nazareth. And Professor Strange said that the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have been uh, about 90 miles. And uh, you can see in this picture here, hopefully you can see, that there's two possible routes that people think Joseph and Mary would have taken, one represented by the dotted black line, one by the, the green dotted line. And one's a little bit longer than the other, but both of them are over 80 miles. Now, for perspective, if you were to walk the usual driving route from here to Boston, that would be 80 miles. So this is not a small journey. This is a big deal. And uh, <clears throat> according to Strange, in antiquity, people would kind of max out at traveling 20 miles a day. Uh, that's, that's how far you can go if you're really pushing it. And the route from Nazareth to Bethlehem was not an easy route. You might have noticed that in the text it says that they went up to Bethlehem. Now, if you look at this map, you'll be able to see that directionally Bethlehem is not up, right? It's south. So when it says up to Bethlehem, it means that there's an ascent that has to happen, right? You're not, <laughs> if you're going from Nazareth to Bethlehem, you're not traveling on flat land. You're going to be dealing with some rough terrain. So, <clears throat> Strange estimates that with a heavily pregnant woman traveling on rough terrain, max they were doing about 10 miles a day. 
So if you do the math there, that means that this trip was nine days, and maybe more if they rested on the Sabbath. So that's not a, that's not a small thing, right? This is a big deal. And you can imagine how upsetting it would be to get this news right just a few weeks or you know, days before Jesus is supposed to arrive, that, oh, now you have to take this trip. And Strange also says that they would have traveled through the Judean desert in the winter. And that would mean that temperatures would probably be in the 30s. And it would be pouring most of the time. Now, I was very surprised by that, because I don't know about you guys, but when I think about the world of the Bible, it's very hot and dry all the time. Uh, and I was like, can this really be, is this just, just some sort of like, I don't know, sensational thing where they're trying to exaggerate? And I, I looked up uh, today in the Judean desert, what is the climate like? And sure enough, most of the time it's very hot and dry, but at the beginning of the end of the year, it showed this spike where there's a tremendous amount of rain and it's around 30 degrees. So they would have been, they would have had a wet, long, miserable trip. And on top of all the physical strain and the cold, there were other things to be afraid of too. Travelers around the uh, Jordan River had to look out for lions and bears and wild boar uh, that could attack at random. Uh, and bandits were also a common hazard along the trade routes. Sometimes they're called uh, the pirates of the desert. And so this was a dangerous trip. It's a trip that most of us would never want to take, never mind if uh, we or our wife was heavily pregnant. You know, I have to wonder if as Joseph and Mary were in the rain making this miserable trip, if they were holding out hope Maybe we'll be able to get to Bethlehem, get this red tape sorted out, and make our way back so that things will be in their right place before the arrival of Jesus. I wouldn't be surprised if those sorts of thoughts were going through their minds. Maybe they were hoping and praying that things are still going to fall into place. But of course, that's not what happens, right? Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem, and then the time comes, right on cue, for Jesus to be born. Um, and <laughs> you know how there's that saying, you, you never should say, oh, it can't get worse than this. I imagine Mary and Joseph saying that when they know they have to take this trip at this time. Oh, it can't get worse than this. But of course, then it, get, it does get worse because Bethlehem is so crowded from all these people coming to follow up on the, the decree that they can't get a room to stay in. There's no, no space in the inn. And the text isn't entirely clear where Mary ends up giving birth, but it appears to be near animals, right? Because Jesus is laid in a, in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. So either they were in a barn next to an inn, or they were in a special room in an inn that's not really meant for people, but it's meant for animals. Maybe they were in a cave somewhere. Um, whatever the case, uh, this is... <laughs> This is a situation where probably Mary and Joseph were thinking, well, things have gone from bad to worse. I wonder if Joseph looked at Jesus in that manger and he thought, I wish we could have been home. I built that great crib for this very moment, but you know, instead the king of Israel is lying in a feeding trough for animals. 
You know, I wonder if he, he looked at Mary and he thought, I wish I could have made this easier for her. I wish she hadn't had to have given birth in this place that's so unfamiliar. I wish she had been somewhere safer and more comfortable. I wonder if he thought, boy, things really didn't fall into place here. And maybe he questioned God. I'm just, I'm putting myself into the text imaginatively. I don't know for sure, but maybe he questioned God. Maybe he said, why did this stupid census have to happen now? You know, why did the government have to mess up all of our plans? God, you knew this baby was, was coming. This is your son, after all. Why didn't you make his entrance into the world smoother, nicer, you know, more according to plan? Why are we exhausted 90 miles away from home in this animal pen? You know, from a, from a surface perspective, the first Christmas was a mess, a complete mess. So whenever our Christmas feels like a mess, that's something we should remember. We're in good company. But that's not the only thing I want us to remember. The story of the first Christmas reminds us of two other things. One, God is with us in the mess. And two, God uses the mess. God is with us in the mess, and God uses the mess. First, God is with us in the mess. How so? Well, if you've grown up in the church, hopefully this is extremely familiar to you, but in case it's not, we have to remember that the birth of Jesus is the entrance into the world of the incarnate God. Right? The birth of Jesus is a big deal for that reason. It's, it's not just the story of the birth of just any baby. If so, it would be like, well, what's all the fuss about, right? This is supposed to be God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, God could have arranged for the human version of himself to be born in any kind of circumstances, right? He could have arranged to be born to a rich couple uh, at home, you know, uh, in, a, in, a, in a fancy place and, and laid in a, a soft, finely crafted crib that maybe looked like a throne. You know, he could have arranged for all that. But the fact that God chose to be born into a mess, that's remarkable. Do you realize what God is saying to us through that? He's saying, I'm with you, even in the chaos. Right? Especially in the chaos. Whatever mess you're in, even if it seems like nothing is falling into place, I'm alongside you. I'm with you. You know, what God tells us through the Christmas story is something that's so radically different from what we have a tendency to think uh, normally. See, we have a natural human tendency to think, well, if things are going wrong with my life, if I'm having trouble paying the bills, if my health is bad, if nothing is falling into place, well, then God must be upset with me. He must have withdrawn his blessing and his presence from me. And uh, he's trying to teach me a lesson or something like that. You know, don't we all have a tendency to think that? If something goes wrong, we go, why me, God? What's going on? What are you trying to, to do to me? What are you punishing me for? But the Christmas story challenges us not to think that way so quickly. Don't be quick to assume that the mess in your life is some sort of sign that God's against you. Because Mary and Joseph, they weren't being punished. That census wasn't some sort of judgment on them. 
God hadn't withdrawn from them. God was with them. And he was with them in a profound way that would change history and still be affecting us today. God's with the poor. God's with the vulnerable. God's with the refugee. Because when God arranged the circumstances of his own birth, he chose to be born to a poor, vulnerable, humble couple who would go on to be refugees who were in a mess. And if any of us are in a mess this Christmas, God is with us too. Second lesson, God uses the mess. At the time, I bet that Mary and Joseph thought that having to travel 90 miles at the end of Mary's pregnancy was just bad timing. But what felt like bad timing was actually perfect timing. And here's why. About 700 years before all this, uh, the prophet Micah made a prophetic statement that has been recorded for us for forever. And uh, he wrote these words. He said, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So this was a prophecy that said that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the King of Israel, the one who was going to come and set things all right, he would be from Bethlehem. And those who were familiar with the scriptures knew this, uh, the teachers of the law and that sort of thing. And, and the, the reason that we know this is because in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that when King Herod found out, when he heard these rumors that the king of Israel had been born, he called together the people who really knew the scriptures, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And and they told him, in Bethlehem, in Judea. And then they went on to quote this very prophecy that was said 700 years before, recorded in the, in the book of Micah. So this mess that Joseph and Mary had to endure, this wet, cold, dangerous, 90-mile trip late in Mary's pregnancy that completely undid all of their plans, it wasn't just a mess. It had a point. It was to fulfill what God had spoken through that prophet 700 years ago. And it was meant to be a sign for the ages that Jesus really is the King of Israel, the Messiah, the one who's come to set all things right. So the mess wasn't just a mess. God was doing something. And even though Mary and Joseph probably couldn't recognize it at the time, there was a reason for all that mess. And that should give us hope, you know? Because even though we might not be able to figure out why everything's not going according to plan, it doesn't mean God's not bringing something beautiful out of the mess that we're in. It doesn't mean that God's taking his hands off the wheel. It doesn't mean that someday we won't look back and realize that he was with us through all that mess. It doesn't mean that, you know, even when everything feels out of place, that things aren't really in place. God is with us in the mess, 
and he uses the mess. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season we would have a renewed sense of your presence with us, even if we're in the midst of a lot of mess. Even if it feels like everything's out of place, Lord, I pray that we would remember that the Christmas story shows us that you're with us even when everything feels like it's, it's really messed up. And that you can work through those circumstances to do incredible, beautiful things. In Jesus' name, amen.